This episode of the Ed Search Podcast is brought to you by PowerSchool. By combining Schoology's award-winning LMS with PowerSchool's education technology suite, PowerSchool connects everyone in your district. From the back office to the classroom to home, PowerSchool unifies your technology to keep learning going, even when the whole world stops. Learn more at homeroomtohome.com. That's homeroomtohome.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Emily Tate, a reporter here covering K-12 schools. He started his career as an elementary school teacher, then became a high school guidance counselor and dean of students. After that, he founded his own public middle school in the Bronx and served as its principal for 10 years. Now, Jamal Bowman is headed to Congress. In what has been called a stunning upset, the progressive Bowman defeated a 16-term incumbent in the U.S. House of Representatives in a recent primary election. Bowman is a complete newcomer to politics. He was a practicing educator up until about six months ago when he resigned his position as principal to become a full-time candidate. Meanwhile, the man he defeated has held the same U.S. House seat in New York since 1989 and is chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. You may have seen headlines about this last week. It was, and is, a big story. In this case, the primary win nearly clinches the victory. Bowman has no Republican Party challenger, and his congressional district leans heavily Democratic. As he wrote on Twitter last week, I'm a black man who was raised by a single mother in a housing project. That story doesn't usually end in Congress. But today, that 11-year-old boy who was beaten by police is about to be your next representative. On the heels of his victory, I spoke with Bowman about the perspective he hopes to bring to Congress, what it will take to reopen schools safely, and the role of educators in addressing systemic racism in America. But first, I'll let Bowman introduce himself in his own words. Uh, Sure. Uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, recently elected uh, to Congress, uh, Democratic congressional elect in New York's 16th district. Uh, Prior to running for office, I worked in public education for 20 years. Uh, started my career as an elementary school teacher in the South Bronx uh, before becoming a high school dean of students and guidance counselor for three years. Uh, after working in education for eight years, I wrote a proposal and opened my own district public middle school in the North Bronx called the Cornerstone Academy for Social Action. Served there for 10 and a half years as the founding principal uh, before deciding to run for office. Uh, my personal background is I was born and raised in the Upper East Side, East Harlem section of Manhattan, uh, raised by a single mom along my three sisters, uh, went to public schools my whole life, and lived in uh, the housing projects and rent-stabilized apartments growing up as well. Thank you. Um, and I guess I'm wondering what was your own experience in the U.S. education system, and how does that inform the views and priorities that you plan to bring to Washington? Yeah, so I went to, as I mentioned, I went to public schools my entire life. Uh, I had the good fortune of going to very diverse public schools. Uh, So it was racially diverse, it was economically diverse, uh, and I had a chance to learn from others who who had different backgrounds and different experiences than me. So that was was pretty cool. Uh, I also grew up in a neighborhood that had a ton of sort of uh, resources to help with my overall social and emotional development. So on the Upper East Side, I lived not far from Central Park, Museum Mile, and a plethora of community centers that I would go to to play sports, engage in the arts, 
and what have you. Uh, despite all of that, uh, because of the era I grew up in, uh, it was like the crack cocaine era in New York City, uh, there was a lot of violence and a lot of problems that we would get into uh, in our schools. Uh, so, you know, a lot of fights and different things happening. So at the end of my school career, I moved to Sayreville, New Jersey uh, to finish high school uh, at Sayreville War Memorial High School. And uh, that was a different different environment. You know, it was mostly white, mostly suburban. And uh, I was an athlete there. I was a football player. But it was definitely culturally different. Uh, and Sayreville itself is different than New York City. In New York City, you could leave your house. You could walk down the street, go to the park, and hang out. And there's tons of people everywhere. Sayreville is the suburbs. You can't, if you don't have a car, you can't really go anywhere or, or do anything. Um, and then after that, I went to college first in West Virginia and then in Connecticut before graduating and becoming a teacher. So I've always fought for and believed in integrated schools uh, because of my experiences, always fought for uh, educating the whole child as opposed to this hyper focus on standardized tests and academic achievement. Because, you know, as I was growing up, you know, without a father, uh, I was very angry and acted out in school quite often. And what sort of settled me down and kept me focused was engaging in extracurricular activities uh, like the arts, like sports. And that's where I met mentors who, who, who meant more to me than just teachers in the classroom trying to get me to, to high academic performance. Uh, so my focus on educating the whole child, social and emotional intelligence is just as important as cognitive uh, intelligence. The focus on community schools and really uh, focusing on community development as well as academic achievement. Uh, because when kids have resources in their communities, uh, they're more likely to grow holistically. And understanding the interconnections between, you know, housing, family dynamics, healthcare, employment, and what happens in education, uh, my personal experience sort of informs all of that. So you would say that um, you support a whole child approach because that was your experience and it was so enriching for you? Absolutely. And enriching is the perfect word. Um, and not just, and it's not just my personal experience is what the research has shown me as well. You know, I have a doctorate in education leadership uh, and we look at um, community development, community organizing, uh, critical care, and what approaches like educating the whole child uh, does for children from a variety of backgrounds. Because even in white wealthy communities where academic achievement is pushed and, and, and driven, uh, there are children there who are emotionally empty because they're only seen as these as people who are good for academic excellence. Um, th this is what I believe educating the whole child is all about, is putting children on a pathway to fulfillment and not just a pathway to achievement. And I think there's a, there's a very important distinction there to be made. Uh, we have to educate our children and, and everyone as whole people. I actually think that's how you deal with racial and economic justice as well. So I know you won't be the only educator in Congress come 2021, but you know because it's a pretty small camp, um, what do you feel like Congress needs to know about U.S. public school education, and how are you as a um, former teacher and a longtime educator and school leader uniquely positioned to tell or rather teach them? Yeah, well, our schools do not exist in isolation. Our schools exist within a context. Uh, they, they exist within a economic context, a, a racial context, 
uh, and the historical context. And you cannot separate one from the other. So as we seek to improve our schools, we have to have a holistic lens uh, in doing so. So we have schools existing within redlined, historically marginalized and oppressed communities. So if you want to improve the school, we have to also improve job prospects in that community, housing in that community, environmental racism that often exists in these communities. And again, flood the community with resources, the resources in which they've been neglected of uh, for decades. So while schools are what I call the heartbeat of our communities and a central piece to it, we have to really uh, focus on a holistic view and approach to improving schools and neighborhoods. I mean, our kids and our families are dealing with intense, you know, what we call toxic stress and chronic trauma related to poverty and related to bad policy. And our policy has to take this holistic approach as we as we work with our schools, with our teachers, and with our families, everything is interconnected, as the coronavirus uh, has shown us. You know, this, this invisible virus uh, that's making millions of people sick and killing hundreds of thousands disrupted our economy, our school system, overwhelmed our healthcare system, and brought up issues of environmental injustice as well. So that holistic approach is what we need Congress to take going forward. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, toxic stress. And I wanted to ask, what kind of um, teacher training or professional development can support schools in becoming more trauma-informed and addressing toxic stress, especially in light of um, the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that that's affecting children, teens, and entire families? We have to understand uh, the impact of toxic stress and chronic trauma and this impact on our bio biology, like literally our brain development and, our, and the hormones in our body. Uh, because uh, many children deal with disproportionate amounts of toxic stress and chronic trauma, particularly during the early childhood years, their brain is almost re rewired toward poor academic and health outcomes across the lifespan if there aren't the proper interventions in place. Uh, nurturing communities, nurturing environments, uh, environments that focus on healthcare holistically from, uh, from healthy organic foods to exercise, to positive relationships, to, to positive learning environments. Again, this is a holistic sort of public health approach. So the more we understand the impact of stress and trauma on brain development and long-term health and education outcomes, um, the more we're able to create nurturing environments along the way uh, that will help to sort of right the wrongs of toxic stress as children have, have grown up. And, and quite honestly, uh, things like curiosity and creativity and collaboration are a part of uh, righting the wrongs of toxic stress that happen over the course of someone's, uh, someone's lives. Uh, and we need it now more than ever. You know, we're all living through a collective trauma uh, and, you know, people are dealing with housing insecurity, food insecurity, lack of childcare, uh, trying to deal with online learning. That's a struggle for everyone. I mean, my wife and I are both educators and we're struggling to educate our 10 and six year old. So that's just, this is what we're all dealing with now. And this is the approach we need to take as we consider opening schools. First and foremost, we need to focus on the well-being of children, you know, like Maslow's theory, you know, like Bloom's taxonomy, like we need to focus on these things. 
After the break, we'll talk with Bowman about what is needed for schools to reopen safely this fall. Stay with us. COVID-19 has pushed schools and districts into a new era of learning. Parents don't have to go to a school building to enroll their students, but can now register from anywhere. Training your teachers and providing ongoing professional development no longer requires a conference room, but can happen virtually. Assessments don't need paper and pencil hand-ins, but can take place on the same digital platforms as learning. That's why PowerSchool, now with Schoology, provides education technology that can ensure the learning continues, whether it's in the classroom, at home, or a blend of both. Flexibility is critical so that schools and districts can rapidly adjust to support all students' academic and emotional needs with continuity, and ensure teachers are supported and trained to teach in any situation. PowerSchool can ensure that your district remains operational even when the school buildings have to close. Learn more at homeroomtohome.com. That's homeroomtohome.com. Now back to the episode. It kind of does seem as if the whole country is watching and waiting as school districts consider their options for instruction in the fall. Um, So I'm wondering if it were up to you, what reopening approach would you recommend for the middle school you founded, the Cornerstone Academy for Social Action? Um, and why would that be the right approach for that region and that population? It's a very good question. Uh, first of all, if, if we don't have the full resources of the federal government, I would not feel comfortable opening schools. Uh, and by full resources, I mean money to make sure we can hire the right personnel to clean our schools accordingly, to make sure all of our kids and teachers have masks and gloves to make sure the classrooms are properly ventilated. Uh, These things have to be in place before we even think about opening schools and they're not in place now because we don't have the resources from from the federal government. In addition, uh, we need more teachers because we need to lower class size and we need to use alternative spaces uh, for teaching and learning. So libraries, community centers, theaters that are not being used, outdoor learning opportunities, These all need to be put in place in a systematic way so that our classes remain small, no more than eight, nine, or 10 kids in a class. And while they're in there, the ventilation is is proper and they're they're properly clean, but also outdoor experiential learning opportunities, which is something I've always supported. Uh, But now is the time to really implement it to keep kids safe because when you're outdoors, you're less likely uh, to contract the virus. Um, So at this very moment, as we sit here, I will not be ready to open our school and I would not feel comfortable. But once the full resources of the federal government are brought to bear and then all stakeholders are at the table being very transparent and coming up with solutions uh, to opening, only then will I be ready ready to open uh, properly and accordingly. Um, On top of that, is there any other like context or necessary considerations that our national, state, and local leaders who are responsible for making these reopening decisions are missing right now that that they need to be aware of? Uh, Children with special needs in particular um, is a population that we're not talking enough about. Um, We we already have, you know, what's it been? Five or four or five months uh, where, where children who, if they were in school, they would have been receiving occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, you know, uh, English language learners would be receiving supports, class sizes would have been smaller, more intimate attention, uh, and they have not received any of that right now. 
So putting a mechanism in place where maybe teachers can go to the homes of children with special needs and provide the services that they need there is something that needs to be considered because all parents are overwhelmed, but particularly parents of children with special needs. You know, they don't know what to do and they've kind of been left out of the conversation. Uh, so that's an area where we need to we need to pay a lot more attention to. And that's why I support, you know, hiring more teachers because it's not just about teachers in the classroom supporting children or teachers in, in outdoor environments supporting children. There needs to be a home visit mechanism to this as well um, so teachers can support families in the home. And in order for that to happen, just like in schools and outside, we need more testing, faster results, and contact tracing so we can like keep this, this pandemic under control. Thankfully, New York is doing a lot better than other uh, states, but still, we're not at 100%. We still have deaths every day, so there's a lot more that needs to be done around testing as well. You mentioned that you're a father of two young kids. How are you, um, well, what are you hearing about their return to school, and how are um, you and your wife kind of juggling those realities? Uh, we, we right now are not even thinking about sending them back to school. Um, we, we are lucky. Uh, we have a, a grandma, you know, my mother-in-law, who's a former educator, who if we needed her to homeschool, she can do some homeschooling. Um, and we're very lucky and very privileged to have that option. As you know, millions of parents do not have that option. Um, so it's, it's really stressful uh, for them. And it's stressful for us because I, I want my kids to go back to school. I want them to be around their friends. I want them to be safe. I want them to be learning formally with a teacher every day. But my wife and I, as we sit here today, we're, we're not comfortable with that. Um, so it seems like at this moment, we'll take the, the homeschool approach. But stay tuned. We'll see. You've mentioned uh, standardized testing and sort of looking at the holistic view of the child. I guess I'm wondering, because defining student success and measuring progress have always been complicated um, with a rapid transition to distance learning and what looks like it may continue in the fall, um, many educators are having trouble gauging growth right now. So how did you define student success at your middle school and what would your advice be to educators and school leaders trying to measure progress as they plan for reopening? Absolutely. So formative assessment is key. So there's no separation between teaching and learning. You know, some people call it learning and teaching because those things are simultaneous. So formative assessment is the glue that ties teaching and learning together. So teachers should be consistently assessing as they're teaching in alignment with, you know, grade appropriate standards that are challenging, rigorous, etc. And that's what's been lost in the standardized testing conversation, a focus on exemplary teaching and learning and what that looks like in the classroom. One of the things that we did a lot of, we did a lot of conferencing with kids, one-on-one uh, -on -one and in small groups to assess their learning in alignment with a particular skill uh, that we were teaching. And that could be done online as well, one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Uh, if teachers can make time and have the opportunities to do so. One of the problems is access. You know, my wife, who's a second grade teacher, has many students that haven't even logged on uh, to online learning uh, since the pandemic hit because they don't have access to the hardware, they don't have access to the Wi-Fi, uh, so she hasn't been able to connect with them uh, via, via the computer. Uh, so that's been an issue as well, as well as just managing 
uh, the curriculum, and I'll put that in quotes, that the city has provided uh, for my wife to use uh, with her students. There's a lot of uh, building the plane as it's being flown uh, in terms of trying to teach and support kids uh, via an online platform. But it can be done. You know, the more the more one-on-one opportunities and small group opportunities teachers have for kids, the better. Uh, that's hard to do uh, within a, what is it, 8 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Monday through Friday framework. And many teachers go outside of that framework to provide the one-on-one support that teachers need. And once again, this is not only something that Congress doesn't quite understand when it comes to what happens in our schools, even leaders at the city and state level, mayors, governors, and even some uh, superintendents and chancellors don't understand and provide the supports to teachers to help the most vulnerable students. I think one-on-one meetings with students does seem like a really good option and a way to really understand how they're doing, but that also uh, is more time for the educators on top of what is really a taxing experience they're going through. So I wonder, as a former school leader, how you think other school leaders and district leaders can be supporting their classroom teachers during this time. Yeah, so they need to be supporting each other as well um, because this is a challenging uh, time for all of us. Uh, what, what's happening with my wife and what her um, principal is doing, which I think is very good, is he's meeting with his teachers, uh, not just once a week with the entire staff, but periodically as teachers need to support because the support is not just around figuring out what to do with the kids. The support is also around like how well teachers are doing emotionally during this very traumatic time. Um, so at my school, when it was open, you know, we had like an open door policy. I was, su- I was super visible uh, in the hallway in classrooms, always checking in with teachers, seeing how well they were doing. Um, so that's something that I would have continued doing um, as a principal, even during during distance learning. I'm also the kind of person that probably would have like drove by the homes of my teachers uh, just to say hello and wave and just check in socially distant, obviously, uh, just to just to reconnect because this is a trying time. But again, I also want to mention that school administrators need that support as well uh, because they're trying to figure this out. They're dealing with an emotional uh, situation. Many of their kids go to school as well. So this is a this is a time for a sort of collective <laughs> healing and collective support that we all need uh, within schools and beyond. So in addition to dealing with the uh, COVID pandemic, the crisis of systemic racism in this country is top of mind for not only our students and families, but for educators as well. Um, what responsibility do districts and school leaders and educators have in addressing systemic racism in our schools? And what suggestions do you have for educators as they plan to tackle this topic in the year ahead? It, it should have been top of mind uh, for years. Uh, this is not, systemic racism is not a new phenomenon. You know, George Floyd's murder, his lynching, is not a new thing, you know. Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, and many others were recently lynched very publicly by the police, uh, and and people are aware of that. But systemic racism lives in our schools every day, even when black men aren't being lynched on camera. It lives in our curriculum. It lives in our teaching staff. It lives in how we measure success. Um, It lives throughout the communities that we work in. 
there's a reason why uh, the, the, the wealth gap is what it is across racial lines. Uh, there's a reason why the majority of teachers across the country are white and female. Uh, there's a reason why when we look at the school curriculum, uh, it's absent of multicultural history and culture uh, and black history starts with slavery and not of, of kingdoms in, in ancient Africa. So this is all systemic racism and how it manifests in our schools. And what, what needs to happen is a, is a relearning of and a re-preparation of, of teachers in our schools in alignment with racial justice, right? We all need to be retrained so that we can, you know, create a world where, you know, we're not looking, we're not judging people based on race and differences and, and, and continuing to nurture not just systemic racism, but implicit bias that is all that is just as as bad in many of our schools and throughout society. So this needs to be a reawakening and a relearning for uh, the education system in, as a whole and the teaching profession as a whole. You know, there needs to be a lot of reading and and watching documentaries and just doing the knowledge of the history of systemic racism throughout this country's history and how to approach teaching differently. Uh, once we get back to school with our kids. I know we have limited time, so um, I wanted to ask you one last question, and hopefully this will be a fun one for you. Um, Were the other questions not <laughs> I enjoyed I, answering all of them. <laughs> okay. Well, then this is just a bonus. Um, okay, great. But since so many educators have not been physically in the classroom for many months and have not seen their students in person, I wondered if um, you would share a favorite memory from the classroom or maybe a student who um, sparked the most joy or was an especially rewarding one to have in class. Hmm. That is a fun question. I have to think, damn. I don't ever get that question, but it's a good one. So in class, so I've been a principal the last 10 years, so I might have to give you something that may not be in a classroom, but like in my school. Would that be yeah. okay? Yes, I actually regret saying in class because that's okay. That's you fine. are, it sounds like you know so many of your students, that works just fine. Yes, so um, th there's a former student named Naomi who, uh, she, her smile just lights up the world around her. She's just incredible. And she, she's, uh, she's Dominican, she's a dancer, and she's just a, 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 a happy face. So when you ask the question, her face came to mind first. And this is actually after um, I resigned my position. So I resigned my position January 1st of 2020. So this was after that, but before the pandemic. And there had been a recent uh, rise in um, anti-Semitic attacks uh, across the country, but even in New York City, like they were targeting New York City, it seemed, particularly Brooklyn. So we had a day of action, um, myself and organizations across the city, uh, just, just denouncing the attacks, but then speaking about like our beautiful differences um, and how we need to come together like as a human race. So the action, there was an action at my old school uh, that I did with some former students uh, in the yard because I wasn't allowed to go into school now that I, I was a uh, congressional candidate. So we did it in the yard and 
it was Naomi um, and about six or seven of her friends, all my former students. And we, we did like some selfie videos uh, talking about this issue. And then kids went around and started talking about not just the, the issue, but CASA and what the school meant to them. And they, they were just using words like working together and family and community circle, which is a space where we come together every Friday to celebrate our values, celebrate our school, and, um, and make public apologies if someone did a harm against the school. So that moment is, is what came to mind when you asked that question of us just coming together in community building, denouncing the anti-Semitic attacks, and talking about you know family and culture and, and everything that CASA stood for. So. That's the first thing that came to mind, Naomi's face and that, that particular moment. That sounds really nice. Um, even just the thought of everyone being together. Um, yes. Well, thank you so much, Jamal. I really appreciate your time. And I wish you the best of luck uh, as you get started in Congress. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we feature conversations like this one. So if you like what you heard, you can keep up with future episodes by subscribing on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen. This episode was edited by me, Emily Tate, and produced by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening. <laughs>